Prospect for Murder, written and narrated by Jean Burroughs Johnson. Audiobook sample. Prologue. Those who have compared our life to a dream were right. We sleeping wake and waking sleep. Michel de Montaigne, 1533 to 1592. Sepia-brown images flicker in slow motion, then shift abruptly to full color in real time as I look through the fence of Honolulu's old Makiki Cemetery. Some of the aging headstones lean into one another as though in conversation. What secrets they would share if they could. I look up at the luxury high-rise condominium, looming like a night watchman above. My eyes pan across the low-rent apartments and million-dollar houses stretching into Honolulu's foothills and then toward the University of Hawaii. A breeze rustles the long, dry grass at my feet. Black as death, a minor bird shifts in its perch in the penetrating fragrance of a eucalyptus tree. I blink and brush a veil of dust from my eyes. The vista shifts. I am suspended above the roof of a four-story apartment complex. Below, a young woman is sprawled, face down, awkwardly hugging the hood of a vintage car. The heat of the first day of summer shimmers across the polished copper of her long, tangled hair. I observe the scene with the dispassionate interest of a newswoman. A uniformed police officer takes notes while interviewing a small, elderly Asian woman. The demanding wail of an approaching ambulance slices the midday air. Everything freezes mid-frame, again subsiding into sepia tones that harmonize with the trail of blood pooled and drying below the girl's outflung right hand. I stare as a silver bracelet flashes the sun's rays up at me. My breath catches on the sickening sweetness of a blended scent of plumeria flowers and blood. I exhale and try to resume breathing normally. My heart throbs in rhythm with a metallic ringing in my ears. Slowly, my hand reaches for the telephone. My twin brother Nathan is calling to tell me what I already know, that my grandniece will not be graduating from college, will not be participating in this weekend's paina, or anything else on this plane of existence. From Chapters 1 and 2 It was only mid-afternoon, so I decided to take an unscheduled trip into Lower Makiki. Within a half hour and a single bus transfer, I was speeding along the road that passed near to what could have been Ariel's home. Hello? I was taking a walk through the neighborhood, and I wondered if I might visit with the manager. Brusquely, he said, I don't see her truck. But that doesn't mean anything. That nephew of hers is always borrowing it. Dressed in cut-off jeans from another decade and a green and white t-shirt from the University of Hawaii, the tall, leathery Howley was so tanned he must not have heard the decades of reports on the causes of skin cancer. My eyes glanced over at the large rag mop in an industrial bucket on wheels. With a sharp intake of breath, I recognized what he was doing attempting to scrub away impressions of what might have been my grandniece's blood on the cracked asphalt paving. 
I stared with revulsion at his labor and the bucket of soapy, reddish-brown water. Following my downward stare, the man casually noted, "'Guess you heard about the jumper we had last Friday. Don't know why she'd pick a low-rise. There's no accounting for kids these days. Hazmat folks have finished, but there's always a bit of a mess to take care of with so many vehicles going in and out. And it's probably going to be months before I'll have my car fully repaired.' Nodding my head as though in agreement, I looked away from the remains of my grandniece's last day. I followed his directions to a pathway of gray cement pavers ahead on the left, walking carefully along the hexagonal stepping stones through the neglected courtyard. I realized with a jolt that this was the path Ariel would have taken on her final afternoon. I paused to look at the strip of first-floor apartments, whose doors stood like soldiers at attention. The glossy white wood-paneled double-door entry to Unit A-101 looked like something from a property featured in Architectural Digest. Abruptly, the right door opened, and a petite Chinese woman peered up at me. While she might be quite old, she had black hair and that beautiful glowing unlined skin of many Asian women. Her voice was surprisingly strong. You are early. I did not think you could come until after five o'clock. Obviously, she had me confused with someone else. Since you are here now, we can look at the apartment and see if it meets your needs. Did I want to break the flow of the moment to let her know who I am or why I am really here? Not yet. I could always tell her there was a mistake after I had had a chance to see the place where Ariel met her untimely demise. As I said on the phone, I am Pearl Wong, co-owner of the Makiki Sunset Apartments. The unit I am now preparing to rent belongs to my sister. I manage both of the buildings now that Jade has moved to an assisted living facility. I am sure your granddaughter will be comfortable here. It is very safe, and many of the tenants are also students. Startled at the word granddaughter, I mumbled something indistinct. Had it not been for a minor incident on the world stage, apartment B-406 would no longer be available. From Chapters 5 and 6 I felt guilty about lying to Miss Wong regarding my reasons for renting the apartment. But since the cause of Ariel's death has not been pronounced officially— I have wanted to avoid tipping off anyone who might have had a hand in it. I turned to finalizing arrangements for my departure from Waikiki. Since Anna already knew about Ariel's death, I was saved from having to go through another painful recitation of the vague circumstances in which the girl died. All I needed was a logical explanation for why I was leaving my home and uprooting my cat to land on the death scene of my dear brother's granddaughter. I've recently heard from a friend who asked me to do some research for him prior to Ariel's death. He's a retired cop, turned private detective. He's going to help me move whatever I'll need to the apartment. An ex-cop, you say? Perfect! I'll bet he loves the idea of you going up there, all alone, except for your valiant feline protector. Given my cover story... It was logical to move only a few possessions to the Makiki Sunset Apartments. 
You're sure you didn't forget anything that's vital, like the cat's food, toys, or litter box, queried Keone. No, meeting her needs was at the top of my list when I planned all of this. There's no way I could have left her behind, and I don't want to ruin all of her daily routine. I even have some new treats and toys to lessen the effects of uprooting her from the only home she's known since leaving her mother. Despite my projection of her continued grand lifestyle, Miss Una crouched unhappily in the pet purse on my lap. She loudly voiced her concerns all the way from Waikiki to Makiki. We pulled into the apartment complex about 10 a.m., with Keone's truck packed to capacity. The handyman I had met during my brief reconnoitering was trimming shrubs along the edge of the low wall at the front of the parking lot. I introduced myself as the new tenant of B-406 and Keone as my friend. All of a sudden, Miss Una, who had been left in the truck, announced her presence with increasing volume. I sure hope your roommate isn't going to be that noisy all the time, grumbled Al. Oh, you'll hardly know she's here. She's normally very quiet, and being an inside kitty, she won't be in your way. I hoisted a travel bag over my shoulder and set Miss Una's carrying case and other essentials into her new litter box. Walking in rhythm to her protests, I carefully traversed the stone pathway on the right of the volleyball court. Keone followed with a dining chair stacked with boxes. We then spent a couple of hours hauling and arranging furniture and setting boxes in their assigned rooms. After untangling hangers and clothing, I declared, Mission accomplished! And we took a break. I still don't like your striving to become Hawaii's Jessica Fletcher, Keone began. It's only for a short while, until the toxicology report comes back to the medical examiner's office, I replied huffily. I knew he was looking out for me, but I did not enjoy feeling like a schoolgirl in front of the principal's desk. I don't mean to add to your anxiety, but I spoke to my old buddy Marty at the M.E.'s office. He said that although there's no unusual bruising on Ariel's body, they found a tear in the lobe of her left ear that could be an indication of foul play in her death. And if that's the case, here you are, ensconced on the premises of a murder scene. I know, I know. That's precisely why I'm here. It's been several days since she died. Even I am aware that the likelihood of solving a major crime decreases with every passing day. It's a little too late to change your plans now. You've already moved in, but it would be good for you to keep a low profile. And remember your promise to call me every day. Why don't you put my cell number on speed dial whenever you're prowling around the property? From Chapter 7 Today's tea party was merely a door opener. However, I knew I needed to impress Miss Wong sufficiently to be allowed entry to her inner circle. I left the apartment with sufficient time to check the mail and saunter slowly along the courtyard to arrive promptly at Pearl's door. Come right in, my dear. Nervous about maintaining my cover as a woman of substance, I sat down somewhat stiffly, feeling as if I were in a modeling class for adolescent girls. I faced a large, round coffee table featuring music boxes, crystal paperweights, and jade eggs. 
The entire living and dining space was beautifully appointed, with medium-toned rosewood chairs, tables, and a buffet with china cabinet, filled with porcelain, silver, and jade. Money was clearly not a problem in this household. Earlier you expressed interest in learning about the history of our home here in Makiki, the story of these apartments, and even the necklaces my sister Jade and I wear, actually begins in China. You see, it is the parting gifts of our Chinese mother and Hawaiian father that have allowed us to have the living we enjoy. She rubbed the large silver-edged necklace on her chest, as though it were a touchstone for conjuring the presence of the woman she clearly missed. I nodded enthusiastically. I assure you I'm truly interested in all of your history here. Then I will start at the beginning. The bounty which has allowed us to have these apartments started with our father, Hiram Wong. He met our mother, Yu Ying Sun, in Shanghai between the two world wars. It was love at first sight. She was the petite, pale, and delicate Asian flower and he the tall, dark, and exotic stranger from Tanhyangshan, or Sandalwood Mountain, as Hawaii was known. Within a few years, our father had amassed considerable wealth and proven his respect for Chinese culture. Consequently, our aging grandfather granted permission for our parents to marry, without the customary rituals of proposal and betrothal. The marriage of these lovers in 1925 was a sign of the Shanghai modernity in which they lived. Business was not the only focus of our parents' lives. Our Amma often told stories of our father showing our mother off to the moguls of politics as well as commerce. In elegant dining rooms they partook of rice wine or champagne, in the thinnest of jade bowls, and plates of the smallest and most tantalizing oysters from the waters off Shanghai. Afterward they danced for hours to the pulsating rhythms of the hybrid form of Shanghai jazz that raged in places like the Yangtze River Hotel Dance Hall. From Chapters 12 and 15 I have a few notes I thought I'd review with you in preparation for my next meeting with Pearl Wong. Good idea. Read away. Settling in, Keone steadied the cat and slid the chair back into a three-quarter recline. Jade's son is Richard. With the name Bishop, Richard's father could have been a high-profile lawyer, minister, or businessman, or a major landholder, like the other bearers of the 18th century missionary name. Keone quickly quipped, or an insignificant and wholly unrelated person. I haven't had a chance to mention that tomorrow is the day Nathan and I are meeting with officialdom. Shortly before you arrived, he called to tell me we're going to meet both Marty Soli and your old partner, Lieutenant Diaz, at the ME's office late tomorrow morning. Keone nodded. I knew you'd be hearing from the ME's office. I wonder what the initial findings are, and what J.D.'s been looking into. He paused for a moment. Would you like me to go with you to see Marty and J.D.? Relieved, I answered immediately. Yes, very much. And with everything he's facing, I haven't told Nathan about my 
little project here. It would be beneficial to have you at the appointments, since you know both the assistant coroner and the detective who's in charge of Ariel's case. You know I'm glad to help. What time shall I pick you up? Lieutenant Diaz nodded and sat down across from Nathan, Keone, and me. He laid the envelope with Ariel's belongings on the table in front of him and his briefcase on the chair to his left. Snapping its latches open, he brought out a steno notepad, a small blue case notebook, and a copy of the coroner's report. Looking over his copy of the report, he said, First of all, since there were no signs of a struggle or a suicide note, the case remains officially listed as an unattended death. Knowing this, do either of you have any questions about the coroner's findings? Nathan looked at me and I shook my head. No, it was quite thorough, especially since there were no indications of pre-mortem wounds. Mm-hmm, concurred the lieutenant. He looked at Keone before continuing. I know you've gone through Marty's initial findings. Although you've seen Ariel's personal belongings, I thought we might walk through everything one more time. With care, he emptied the envelope and arranged everything in a straight line. These items appear entirely normal for a young girl to have, but is there anything that stands out as unusual? The first item was Ariel's watch. The damage to it showed that something violent had occurred, but the source of its ruination appeared to be the result of Ariel's impact with the car. Nathan looked at me but remained silent, obviously expecting me to respond for both of us. In our meeting with Marty, we confirmed that there should have been a second earring, I replied. Keone's former partner stared at me silently for a moment and then opened the small notebook to his left. I see that aside from her right shoe being found on the ground and this bracelet on the antenna, nothing else of hers was found in the Mustang or the area surrounding the event. How can her bracelet look so perfect? asked Nathan, pointing. That's a valid point, but it can be explained. When she fell, it must have tumbled off her wrist and slipped down the antenna. It blended in so well with the polished chrome of the vehicle's details that we almost missed seeing it. It is amazing that the bracelet remained untouched in all the commotion, I must say. Except for the hood, the car was nearly spotless. For the first time, Keone spoke up. I think that's due to the fact that the owner had just finished detailing the vehicle for a car show. We watched while John Diaz paged through his small report notebook. Yes, I see that was mentioned repeatedly by Mr. Cooper. He seems quite fond of that car and is really upset that it hasn't been returned to him. I could not contain myself for an appropriate opening to broach the topic of Al. There are a lot of things that appear to bother Al Cooper. You wouldn't believe what Keone and I heard him say last night. From Chapter 20 When the doorbell rang... My housemaid alerted me that someone was about to enter our kingdom. I stood, fluffed my hair, and trotted to the door. "'Come in, my dear,' I said, pulling Brianna into a desperate hug. Even though I was uncertain about the nature of her twin's death and how it might relate to her, I felt a genuine relief to have her back home. 
Brushing aside a few tears, I stepped back to look at her. Aside from a darkening around her eyes, she looked good. I'm so glad to see you home and safe, I affirmed. She grabbed my hands and squeezed them. Me too, Aunt Natalie. I'm sorry Grandpa Nathan isn't here, but he's not up to being where Ariel died. Looking around in a near daze, she struggled for words. It looks so normal, like nothing awful happened here. I didn't really want to talk about Ariel's case today, but you should know she did not die here. Her death had nothing to do with the apartment itself. What do you mean, Aunt Natalie? I took a deep breath. Sweetheart, she did not fall from this apartment's lanai. I believe she fell from the beverage alcove next door. As you can imagine, the police are doing everything they can to solve the case, but there have been no results from their investigation to date. So that's why you're here? To help? Well, I'm not sure that's how everyone else looks at it, but yes, that's why I came here. I know you've had breakfast, but would you like some tea or maybe a decadent mug of coffee with brandy and chocolate sauce? Well, that's an easy choice. You make the best lazy man's cappuccino, she laughed. I made our drinks without espresso as Brianna assembled photos and display materials. Aunt Natalie, they're all so awesome. Touching the corner of the centerpiece that featured Ariel's high school graduation picture, Brianna sighed. She's so beautiful. She looks like she's going to walk out of the frame. It's so hard to believe she's gone.